0: Uh, Good afternoon. Um, afternoon. It's uh, an honor and really a pleasure to be able to uh, introduce to you Kenneth Levin. Professor Levin earned his undergraduate degree in Mathematics from the University of Pennsylvania and then did a BA as well as a Masters in English Language and Literature from Oxford University, which is at Walnut College and a, an M.D. degree from the University of Pennsylvania and a Ph.D. in History from Princeton. He is a clinical instructor in psychiatry at the Harvard Medical School and has taught at various psychoanalytic training institutes in Boston and maintains a private practice in psychiatry. His previous books include Freud's Early Psychology and, and Neurosis, Historical Perspective and Unconscious Fantasies in Psychotherapy, Dr. Levin has written extensively on, on Israel and Arab, Arab-Israeli, the Arab-Israeli conflict. His articles have been uh, published in the New Republic, the Boston Globe, the Washington Times, the Jerusalem Post, and in many other places. He's most well-known for his important book several years ago called The Oslo Syndrome, Delusions of a People Under Siege. And I think this really catapulted his important work into areas of... The Israeli-Arab conflict, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and Jewish responses to conflict, and certainly touches on profoundly I think, on aspects of anti-Semitism. So it's really an honor to have you here to speak to our seminar series.
1: Thank you, Charles, and thank all of you for uh, coming this afternoon. If one defines anti-Semitism as judging and condemning Jews on false or clearly prejudicial premises, or by some standard applied to no other group, then the term is equally apt whether it is a Jew or non-Jew doing the judging and condemning. Prejudice against one's own society, ethnic group, religious group, or community of origin defined in some other way is hardly a phenomenon limited to Jews. And there can be many psychological sources of such prejudice. It can be grounded in early problems at home, with one's family of origin. Resentments engendered there may subsequently be generalized toward the wider community with which the family of origin is identified. Recurrent painful experiences with peers in school, for example, could later be generalized in the same way. In addition, denigration of one's community of origin and embrace of another can be driven by a desire for escape or liberation from the discontents or disappointments of early life. Attraction to alternative identities, along with prejudicial perspectives concerning one's original identity, can have an allure driven by other psychological dynamics as well. But the embrace of prejudicial perspectives towards one's own community is particularly common within communities under chronic siege, such as minorities, subjected to persistent denigration, marginalization, perhaps physical attack. Besiegement is psychologically corrosive, And those enduring such conditions often adopt the perspective of their tormentors and come to see their community as the besiegers see it. While examples of Jews expressing anti-Jewish prejudices can be found in the distant past, a literature on the subject evolved particularly beginning early in the 20th century. That literature often employed the term Jewish self-hatred to denote the phenomenon. And some have used the two terms, Jewish self-hatred and Jewish anti-Semitism, as interchangeable. But distinguishing between them may be useful. Jewish self-hatred can be construed as suggesting a prejudice against oneself as well as fellow Jews, while Jewish anti-Semitism suggests a bias against other Jews, whether all are part of the broader Jewish community that exempts oneself. Again, this distinction is not one made in much of the literature. Max Nordau the Austrian Jewish writer and early Zionist, observed in 1896, quote, it is the greatest triumph of anti-Semitism that it has brought Jews to view themselves with anti-Semitic eyes, unquote. And he seems to be referring to Jews seeing their own selves as well as other Jews through such eyes. But the concept and term self-hatred captures a profound truth on the level of Jews' sense of themselves as individuals in the face of chronic denigration. For example, the Jewish child subjected to constant anti-Jewish taunts, even physical attacks, and social exclusion in the schoolyard will very often respond by questioning what is wrong with him and how he can change to an acceptance. If his parents and community fail to convey a strong counter-message, not just of the unfairness and bigotry of his tormentors, but more importantly, of positive significance to Jewish identity of that identity entailing something of genuine value worth preserving and cultivating, then the child's response of self-denigration becomes virtually inevitable and will likely be carried into adulthood, with the child as an adult feeling himself tainted and flawed by virtue of his being Jewish. On the other hand, self-hatred seems less apt when, for example, a Jew or Jewish apostate is vehemently attacking other Jews in in anti-Semitic terms and is clearly exempting himself from the attack as, for example, in Karl Marx's anti-Jewish diatribes. Similarly, self-hatred hardly seems to apply when a Jew is invoking anti-Semitic characterizations of Jews across some social or religious or political divide, Jews he obviously sees as different from himself. Among examples, all well established by the latter part of the 19th century, are some German Jews perceiving Eastern European Jews as fitting anti-Semitic caricatures, or secular or reformist Jews regarding traditionally religious Jews in this way, or so- socialist Jews viewing the Jewish middle class, quote, through anti-Semitic eyes, unquote. Otto Weininger, whose denigration of Jews in his 1903 text Sex and Character is widely viewed as a paradigm of Jewish anti-Semitism, actually offers an analysis of the relationship between Jewish self-hatred and Jews directing their hatred exclusively at other Jews. Weininger suggests that the latter represents projection of the former. Quote, The bitterest anti-Semites are to, be, are to be found among the Jews themselves, but only the commoner natures are actively anti-Semitic and pass sentence on others without having one satin judgment on themselves in these matters, and very few exercise their anti-Semitism first on themselves. This one thing, however, remains nonetheless certain. Whoever detests the Jewish disposition detests it first of all in himself that he should persecute it in others is merely his endeavor to separate himself in this way from Jewishness. He strives to shake it off and to localize it in his fellow creatures, and so for a moment to dream himself free of it. But, Weinecker suggests, he himself is too self-aware and too honest to entertain such a dream. He seems in his own thinking to set himself apart from other Jews, those he sees as his fellow inferior beings, at least in this brutal honesty. Weininger is not alone in attributing to rejection the phenomenon of Jews hating other Jews while exempting themselves from their hatred. But this psychodynamic, while no doubt operative in many instances, is likely of less relevance in others. For example, in situations where an individual has been reared with no sense of connection to other Jews and genuinely, genuinely feels no relation to He then may not feel in himself any of the negative characteristics that he, under the influence of the surrounding society's biases, perceives in other Jews. In any case, the question of projection touches on the issue of self-perception, how one views oneself under circumstances of belonging to a besieged group and embracing indictments directed against the group. Of greater interest regarding the psychological ramifications of being a member of a community subjected to chronic attack, Is a broader question of how one seeks, via psychological responses and behavior linked to those responses, to ease one's predicament vis-a-vis the besiegers. As suggested earlier, those enduring such conditions often adopt the perspectives of their tormentors and come to see their community as the besiegers see it. The psychological motivation behind their doing so largely entails their quest for relief of their predicament but their adopting the perspective of their tormentors and seeking relief can take various forms. They may urge the community at large to reform in a manner consistent with the haters' indictments, hoping that such reform will end the hatred. Or again, they may choose to see particular segments of the community as fitting to be cedars denigrating characterizations, segments separate from themselves. They may resent being tainted with the same brush, but turn their resentment not on the bigots, but against the, those, those others within the community and hope that by distinguishing themselves from those others, they will escape the hatred. Alternatively, they may seek to abandon the community and lose themselves in the wider society to free themselves of the communal taint. Or they may join the haters in the hope of thereby more emphatically divorcing themselves from the taint. The first of these, embracing the indictments of the besiegers, however bigoted or absurd, and seeking to reform the community to address those indictments, is illustrated by, for example, the response of some Jews to arguments raised in Central Europe in the early modern period against granting civic rights to Jews. Virtually every such argument had its Jewish supporters, who urged communal reform to cleanse the Jews of their supposedly negative characteristics. For example, when it was said that Jews were overwhelmingly occupied with trade, and this was itself degenerate, and demonstrated their not being fit for civic equality, There were many Jewish voices that agreed and said Jews had to leave their current occupations and become particularly farmers to render themselves fit to be accepted by their neighbors. Indeed, this is a major theme of the Mescalim, the followers of Ascala, the Jewish Enlightenment. Similarly, when some in the wider society argued that Yiddish was a degenerate language and was further evidence of Jews being inappropriate candidates for equality, some Jews insisted that their co-religionists must give up Yiddish Not simply because adopting the normative language of the surrounding society would be pragmatic, but because they agreed, Yiddish is intrinsically degenerate and inferior and rendered Jews unsuitable for acceptance as equals. Moses Mendelssohn, clearly someone devoted to the Jewish community and to easing the plight of Jews in the face of the tribulations imposed on them, nevertheless stated in this context that Yiddish is, quote, a language of stammerers, corrupt and deformed, repulsive to those who are able to speak in a correct and orderly manner." Unquote. And another quote, I am afraid that this jargon has contributed more than a little to the immorality of the common man. This embrace of bigoted anti-Jewish assessments of Jewish engagement in trade or Jewish use of Yiddish can certainly be seen as fitting the definition of Jewish antisemitism, although it may seem something less than the most egregious examples of that phenomenon. This is in part because whereas the anti-Semites in the wider society who raised these issues against the Jews saw them as reflecting immutable Jewish characteristics, those who sought Jewish reform consistent with such indictments obviously saw them as aspects of the community that Jews could jettison and wishfully hoped that doing so would be the path to acceptance. In, the, in addition, advocates of such reform included people clearly concerned with the welfare of the community, such as Mendelssohn. Historian David My- uh, Michael Myers has stated, quote, psychologically, there seems to be a trace of self hate or simple shame in Mendelssohn's strange reasoning with regard to Yiddish. With respect to some Jews choosing to see segments of Jewry separate from themselves, often Jews across religious or national or social divides as fitting the besiegers' denigrating characterizations, and hoping that by distinguishing themselves from those others, they will escape the hatred. Again, one example of this phenomenon can be seen in some Jewish socialists' attitude toward the Jewish bourgeoisie. There were significant distinctions distinctions among Jews who in the 19th and early 20th century Europe embraced socialism. In Western Europe, those who did so most often sought to free themselves of their Jewish identity and immerse themselves in an alternative identity as champion of the working class. It was common for such individuals to embrace even actively contribute to the anti-Jewish sentiments that were a widely accepted staple of socialist camp. Ferdinand Lassalle, LaSalle, who became a leading figure in the German labor movement and German socialism, not only as a writer and theoretician, but as an activist organizer, never formally renounced his Jewish identity. But LaSalle sought to distance himself from it in various ways and did not shrink from contributing to anti-Jewish theme, themes and attacks on middle-class liberalism, for example, he wrote of the Jewish editor of the liberal newspaper, Berliner Volkszeitung, a man who cannot even write German, but is slowly but surely corrupting our nation's language and its character with the peculiar gibberish with which he feeds his readers that so-called Jewish German." Unquote. In Eastern Europe, which in the 19th and early 20th centuries meant primarily Tsarist Russia, there were likewise Jews who jettisoned entirely their connections with the Jewish community to take on another identity as socialist or leftist revolutionary of one stripe or other. But there also emerged in the East Jews who embraced socialism without abandoning their Jewish identity. And there revived political parties that were at once socialist and Jewish. These included both Zionist groups and anti-Zionist parties such as the Bund. Within the membership of these groups were individuals who attacked the Jewish middle class, and often traditionally religious Jews as well, as fitting anti-Semitic characterizations of Jews, and who believed that reshaping the Jewish community on socialist and secular foundations would finally free Jews from anti-Semitism. Illustrative were the writings of Russian Jewish novelist and essayist Joseph Time Brenner. who early in his life became involved with the Bund, but later shifted his loyalties and exertions to socialist Zionism, and ultimately moved to Eretz Israel. Brenner was murdered in Tel Aviv by Arab assailants during the May 1921 wave of Arab terror. The following excerpts are from an essay entitled Self-Criticism, written in 1914. Quote, The mode of our living is not one that does us great honor. Yes, we may exist as a mass of gypsies, peddlers, traveling salesmen, and bankers. Who can tell us whether, had there been no universal or understandable hatred of such a strange being, the Jew, that strange being would have survived at all? But the hatred was inevitable. It would be a sign of steadfastness and power of productive strength if Jews Jews would go away from those who hate them and create a life for themselves. If there is no great such movement today, if only a handful of young men can be found among 12 million to give their sweat with which to rinse off the horrible plague of huckstery that has infected us, and their callous hands to roll up, uh, to roll our historic shame off our backs, then this is a sign, a sign of Cain, that the hucksters cleave to their huckstery because they lack the strength for anything better. Then come our national apologists and tell of the steadfastness of the Jews and their religious belief. But what value is there for us in our ancestors' practice of some religious customs, particularly those that cost no money, and the hope of being rewarded in the world to come. Those hundreds of generations lived not on sanctification of the name, but on various schemes aimed at fulfilling for their own benefit the commercial functions demanded of them by the general populace. They lived to safeguard their money and increase the interest rates, and also to guard themselves against baptism. But concessions in religious matters to the demands of the external environment were never lacking. We never had workers, never a real proletariat. Our urge to life whispers hopefully in our ear, workers' settlements, workers' settlements, workers' settlements. This is our revolution, the only one. And that's again from the 1914 essay by Brenner. Finally, there were those Jews who choose to divorce themselves from the Jewish community generally and who embrace the wider society's anti-Semitic disparagement of Jews as a way of more explicitly establishing their separate. Some will convert to another faith or hide their Jewish origins, while others will not formally break with their Jewish past, but simply choose to have no formal community connections. Obviously, examples of this are myriad. Karl Marx is one example discussed prominently in the early literature on the subject of Jewish anti-Semitism. Marx took up the theme of Jewish engagement in trade being a reflection of Jews' unfitness for equal civic rights and expanded on the notion that Jews are not simply coarsened by their involvement in trade, but rather that the Jews and their religion are immutably materialistic and degenerate, and this drives them to pursue commercial endeavors. Marx underwent conversion to Christianity in his native Trier at age six in 1824. His father had converted seven years earlier, at least in part for career purposes, and had thereafter cultivated a German cultural identity. The elder Marx appears to have regarded his path as having abandoned a lesser identity for a superior one, and to have encouraged the same perspective in his son. From his earliest entry into the public arena, Marx was clearly interested in distancing, distancing himself from, quote, the Jews. In the words of Isaiah Berlin, quote, Marx was determined that the sarcasms and insults to which some of the notable Jews of his generation, Kina, LaSalle, the Israeli, were all their lives a target, should so far as he could affect it, never be used to play him. Unquote. The persistent heat of his anti-Semitic diatribes suggests that when he continued to be the target of anti-Jewish wars, he chose to blame not his tormentors, but rather the Jews, for casting the shadow of their tainted existence over his life. And he responded by striving even harder to separate himself from them. In his 1844 essay on the Jewish question, Marx argues that the Jewish mind is too limited and Jewish thinking too concrete to have fashioned a true religion. Instead, it produced a pseudo-religion whose practical expression is materialism and occupation and trade. Also, as a consequence of their limited nature, the Jews are incapable of of creativity and lack aesthetic sensibility. This last argument, while of long pedigree, had recently gained greater prominence in the German-speaking world. It had done so in the context of greater Jewish entry into culture, the cultural mainstream and exertions in poetry and other artistic endeavors. This elicited attacks, the effect that Jews might superficially master German, master German, and faithfully emulate poetic forms, but that the limits of the Jewish mind still meant their exertions would inevitably be devoid of true aesthetic value. Marx writes in the essay, "Quote: What is the worldly cult of the Jew? Aukstere. What is his worldly god? Money." That which is contained in an abstract form in the Jewish religion, contempt for theory, for art, for history, and for man as an end in himself, is the real conscious standpoint of the man of money." Moreover, according to Marx, to the degree that money has become the basis of the social order in the West, the West has been Judaized. The God of the Jews has been secularized and has become the God of this world." From this perspective, perspective, the radical agenda becomes for Marx not just a transformation of modern society to bring about the liberation of everyone, including the Jews, but rather a transformation of modern society whose essence will be a liberation of the world from the ethos of the Jews. Variations on the same anti-Jewish themes are a feature of Marx's writings throughout his life. One can see in Marx's published anti-Jewish arguments not only an attempt to distance himself from the public eye from the Jews, but a more direct retort of sorts to those critics who, in their attacks on his writings, characterized them as ill-conceived products of the alien, primitive, malevolent Jewish mind. By 1850, there were already published attacks on Marx in an anti-Semitic vein, casting him as a revolutionary determined to impose a Jewish dictatorship on Germany. Such attacks continued throughout his life. Marx insists that the defenders of the status quo of bourgeois society are themselves Judaized and are making common cause with the Jews as obstacles to human development. This tack of Jews or Jewish converts responding to anti Semitic invective against them by insisting that their critics are themselves behaving like Jews is a recurrent one during the period. For example, Heinrich Heine, another convert, was subjected to arguments from critics that his poetry was inexorably marred by the aesthetic limitations and lack of artistry of the Jewish mind. Again, that name. Heiner retorted that his critics, by engaging in, engaging in excited, fantastical arguments against him, were themselves emulating the primitive Jewish ways of Talmudic disputation, instead of more measured and reasoned critical discourse. But however much Marx's Gentile critics were a target of his arguments, though those arguments remain, of course, crude assaults on the Jews, assaults that regurgitate and amplify the popular canards of contemporary Jew-baiters. And Marx's ultimate aim in employing them was to gain credibility by demonstrating his separateness from the Jews. A different example of a Jew embracing anti-Jewish perspectives to distinguish himself from the Jews is the American political theorist and commentator Walter Lippmann, scan of a wealthy German-Jewish family and, for many decades, one of the nation's leading political writers. Lippmann sought to distance himself from his origins and from other Jews and repeatedly in his writing embraced popular anti-Jewish indictments and blamed Jews for the hatred directed against them. Quote, the guilt is not one sided as most Jews would like to believe, he asserted in a letter to a friend in which Lipman defended anti-Jewish statements he had published. Ronald Steele, in his acclaimed biography of Lipman, notes, quote, the false Lipman saw bad economic habits, ostentation, stress, gaudy manners, were those of any nouveau region just as the celebrated Jewish clannishness was that of any oppressed group. Instead of demonstrating the irrational basis of anti-Semitism, how the Jews, like other minority groups, were used as scapegoats, Lippmann accepted its premises by blaming the Jews." Of a later assault on the Jews in a similar vein published by Lippmann in 1922, Steele observes, quote, the crudeness, even the cruelty, of Lippmann's attack on his fellow Jews was in dramatic contrast to the sensitivity he had shown to other minority groups and to individuals suffering discrimination or poverty. It was inconceivable that he would have written anything comparable about, for example, the Irish, the Italians, or the blacks, all of whom had their part in news. Libman supported immigration quotas in the 1920s, quotas that fell particularly heavily on Eastern European Jews, and also supported limit- limitations on the admission of Jews to his alma mater, Harvard. In a letter to Harper regarding the latter, he wrote, quote, Jews hand on unconsciously and uncritically from one generation to to another many distressing personal and social habits which were selected by bitter history and intensified by Pharisaic theology, unquote. In fact, Lippmann knew little of the Jewish community or of either Jewish history or theology. And as an intellectual, embracing contemporary anti-Jewish biases, he had no great interest in the people, their history, or their theology. His interest was in cultivating an identity as a cosmopolitan internationalist, aloof from anything that might be construed and censored in the vein of popular anti-Semitic indictment as Jewish parochialism. Lippin's discomfort with his Jewish identity and hostility toward other Jews continued through the Nazi era. During this period, he was perhaps the most influential news columnist in America. In 1933, he defended Hitler and the Germans and insinuated that the Jews were responsible for their their ill treatment. In November 1938, after a five-year silence on the issue of Germany and the Jews, he wrote two columns touching on refugees. Without explicitly mentioning Jews or anti-Semitism, he characterized the problem as simply Europe's quote, overpopulation, and it's having quote, too many shopkeepers, professional men, artists, and intellectuals. He opposed liberalizing America's quota system and suggested the excess population could perhaps be relocated to Africa. Lipman's influence translated into his views being invariably espoused by others, including others in the media. Time magazine, in December 1938, describing Lipman as the nation's, quote, most statesmanly Jewish pundit, unquote, approvingly cited his stance on immigration. Through the course of the war, Lippmann was silent on the plight of Europe's Jews. The phenomenon of some members of diaspora Jewish communities, in the face of the enmity directed against them by the broader surrounding societies, embracing the perspectives of the tormentors, has been recapitulated in the response of some Jews, both in diaspora and in first Mandate Palestine and then Israel, to chronic, Jewish, to chronic Arab besieging. Such adoption of the perspective of Israel's enemies has taken the same various forms noted earlier in the context of Jewish responses to anti-Semitism in the diaspora. An obvious question is when does indictment of Israel rise to the level of anti-Semitism, whether the indictment comes from Jews or non-Jews. One can adapt the definition of anti-Semitism offered earlier, or a variation on the same theme look to the three criteria set out several years ago by Nantan Sharansky for when criticism of Israel becomes anti-Jewish bias, when it entails demonization of Israel, that is, condemnations based on accusations that grossly through distort reality, when it damns Israel by a standard not applied to any other nation, or when it seeks to delegitimize the Jewish state. Some Jews, both in Israel and the Diaspora, have responded to the Arab siege by attacking the right of Jews to pursue a state characterizing as illegitimate for Jews, that quest for national liberation and self-determination routinely accorded other peoples through the 20th century. This attack on the Jewish state has roots both in the pre-state diaspora and in the of the Jewish community and mandate Palestine. Among the arguments raised in Central Europe in, late, in the late 18th and 19th centuries against granting civic rights to Jews was that the Jews were a separate alien nation. In reaction, Many Jews sought to demonstrate that they were exclusively a community of faith, not a nation. German-Jewish Reformist movements in the early 19th century even sought to change litur- the liturgy to delete references to longing for Eretz Israel and Jerusalem, in order to erase any suggestions of national and not purely religious Jewish identity and aspirations. Elements of the German-Jewish community in the Eshuv embraced the same Predilections defined the proper Zionist project as the building of a Jewish cultural center, not a state in Arab Israel. With that mindset, they responded to Arab attacks during the mandate in a manner similar to how so many of them have reacted to anti-Jewish indictments in Europe. They even more emphatically argued against nation building, justified Arab aggression as a reasonable response to the misguided state building of the issue leadership, and excoriated Mingorian and his pro associates. In doing so, they rarely acknowledged they were seeking to placate the Jews' attackers, but rather wrapped their stance in moral self-righteousness. They insisted that Judaism had evolved beyond narrow nationalist concerns, had become exclusively focused on its universal message and mission as a moral force in the world, and that nation-building represented a regressive, atavistic, and shameful direction for Jews. The most prominent figure in this camp was the famous German-Jewish philosopher Martin Buber. In 1929, the leader of the Arab community of Mandate Palestine, Grand Mufti Amin al-Husseini, orchestrated large-scale attacks against the Jews of the issue that led to, among other atrocities, the murder of more than 60 Jews in Hebron. Bufer, then still in Germany, blamed the massacres on the Jews for not having been accommodating enough of Arab sensibilities, and urged an amnesty for those Jews convicted of murder for those Arabs convicted of murdering Jews. Buber's response to the Arab attacks of 1936 and 39 was similar. He immigrated to Yushuvin of 38. He and many of his associates on the faculty of Hebrew University also opposed efforts to push Britain to liberalize Jewish immigration, arguing that such efforts were motivated by the desire to create a Jewish state. Even in the face of the notorious Chamberlain White paper of 1939, severely limiting immigration at such a desperate time for European Jews, the circle around Buber, campaign in support of such limits and insisted there should be no additional Jewish immigration without Arab consent. In effect, Hoover and his allies were supporting what the League of Nations condemned as British betrayal of its mandate obligations to the Jews, closing the major perhaps only potential sanctuary for an obviously threatened European Jewry, and doing so in the name of Judaism's universal mission as a moral force in the world. In an article in Haaretz in November 1939, two months after the start of World War II, Buber argued not only that the Zionist objective of a state was immoral, but that Zionism was, quote, performing the acts of Hitler in the land of Israel. For they, i.e. Zionists, want to serve Hitler's god, that is nationalism, after he has been given a Hebrew name. Among more recent Israeli academics, Moshe Zimmerman, historian at Hebrew University, has insisted there is no such thing as a Jewish people or Jewish nation with its own distinct history, but rather separate communities that had more in common with the larger societies amid which they resided. Consequently, in Zimmerman's view, the entire premise of Zionism as representing the aspirations of the Jewish people and the solution to the difficulties that have dogged and ravaged the Jewish nation is based on the lie. Of course, Zimmerman's arguments are vulnerable to myriad rebuttals. The idea that Jewish communities share much with their local societies is hardly a retort to their sharing values and aspirations with each other as well, or hardly negates the historical truths of shared vulnerability and victimization. And in any case, the identification with Zion and immigration to Israel were not something composed on diaspora Jews by the Zionist mythmakers but were chosen by, by Jews at times under pressure of external tormentors, but still chosen. It is those who would deprive Jews of that choice who could more properly be seen as the culpable ideologues. Moreover, virtually all modern nation states, for example Britain and France as well as Israel, were created by the amalgamation of populations diverse in important ways, and typically by coercion being a much more important part of the mix than in Israel system. So argue that the disparate cultural strengths of the Israeli Jewish population somehow delegitimizes the Zionist enterprise, where the state is itself, an, or the state is itself, a narrow anti-Jewish bias. Indeed, Zimmerman's is an anti-Jewish bias of a particularly crude sort, as when he compares Israeli public school education and Israeli history and Zionism not to education and national history and national culture in Britain or France or the United States, but to the education of Hitler youth. Zimmerman's work explicitly connects historical revisionism with the advancement of an anti-Zionist agenda. According to Zimmerman, as there was no Jewish nation or people to provide a foundation for a legitimate national liberation movement, Zionism is bogus, and in any case, passe, and so it ought to be discarded into the trash bin of history. Joseph Agassiz, a professor of philosophy at Tel Aviv University, has similarly written that Israel, having established itself on the basis of a misconceived, quote, phantom nation, i.e. the Jewish people, is consequently similar to the Soviet Union and, as you may well have guessed, Nazi Germany. The writers of some, o- the writings of some other academics who share such views focus less on details of the alleged misbegetting of Zionism and simply emphasize Zionism's alleged sinfulness or at best its obsolescence. Menachem Brinker, a professor of Hebrew literature at Hebrew University, declared in a Jerusalem Post article in September 1995 that Zionism is a, quote, totalitarian concept that, had, quote, that has, quote, outlived its usefulness and will have away in time, unquote. Views similar to those of these Israeli academics have, of course, been offered by numerous Jews in the diaspora. Tony Jude, for example, has famously or infamously called for Israel's dissolution as in his article, quote, Israel the Alternative, in the New York Review of Books in October t- uh, 2003. Jude justifies his stance logic to claim that Israel's existence, existence as a nation based on an ethnic religious identity is at odds with the spirit of the times. This seems a dubious line of reasoning, not least because just within the preceding decade, more than 20 new nations were created as a result of dismantling of the Soviet Union and Yugoslavia and the breakup of Czechoslovakia nations established largely on the basis of ethnic religious identities. At least a partial explanation for Jude's particular bias towards the Jewish state can be gleaned from his complaint that, quote, Today, non-Israeli Jews feel themselves once again exposed to criticism and vulnerable to attack for things they didn't do. That is, for Israel's alleged misbehavior. Jude is clearly interested in diminishing his own exposure to such criticism and attack by distancing himself as much as possible from any association with the Jewish state. Myriad illustrations of diaspora Jews damning Israel with false allegations, invoking Nazi analogies, and calling for dismantling of the state are worked by Alvin Rosenfeld in his much maligned monograph, Progressive Jewish Thought and the New Antisemitism, published in 2006 by the American Jewish Committee. Many such voices in Israel and the Diaspora argue that Israel has forfeited its right to exist as the state of the Jews by its alleged past transgression or by virtue of its policies in recent decades. Such arguments invariably meet Joransky's criteria of demonization, condemnation, based on accusations that grossly distort reality and discrimination, damning Israel by a standard not applied to any other nation. Among aspects of the state that some in Israel characterize as untenable, against the spirit of modernity or democracy or international values, and that must be jettisoned as part of a program to de-Zionize or de-Judaize the state, are Jewish symbols of the state, such as a flag and national anthem, a Tikva, and most notably the law of return. Israel enacted the law of return, actually two laws, almost at the very inception of the state, giving Jews everywhere the right to come to Israel and attain immediate citizenship. Among anti-Zionist and post-Zionist groups, the criticism has been particularly that the law of return is racist and undemocratic, and this theme was advanced with growing intensity during the early nineteen nineties. For example, an article by Brian Kislev and Haaretz in july nineteen ninety called the law of return quote reminiscent of the Nuremberg Laws. Another by Danny Rubinstein and Haarst of july ninety one declared the kind of discrimination that quote was the basis. For the apartheid regime in South Africa, unquote. Recently, Rubinstein at the UN anti-Israel conference held at the European Parliament of Brussels more broadly characterized Israel as an apartheid state. Historian Tom Segev in our art in uh, October of 95 maintained that the law of return, quote, contradicts the essence of democracy, unquote. Novelist David Grossman in Yedo uh, after in September of 93 insisted that the law of return is an obstacle to, quote, full equality, unquote, for Israeli Arabs. Yael Tzimir, then on the philosophy philosophy faculty of Tel Aviv University, and currently Israel's minister of education, argued in a 1993 book that the law of return constitutes, quote, a violation of the right of national minorities equal treatment, unquote. Now, those Jews who embrace views that entail delegitimization of the Zionist enterprise of the Jewish state, whether as conceptually intolerable or as having become bankrupt because of its execution, or a variation on the same theme who call for dismantling of the Jewish accoutrements of the state as racist or a violation of democratic principles, are most often associated with the political left. Consequently, disagreements between those who hold such views and those who oppose them are commonly cast as a battle between the political left and the political right, both in Israel and the Diaspora. But there are many voices on the political left, for example in Israel, who are critical of various Israeli policies, but who at the same time speak out vehemently, against demonization of the state, or damning of the state on grounds not applied to other nations, or delegitimization of the state, attacks on the state that sink to the level of anti-Jewish bias. To consider just one such voice, Amnon Rubinstein is a former dean of the law school at Tel Aviv University, a member of the Merit's Party, which is, of course, to the left of labor in the Israeli political spectrum and for a time was minister of education in the labor-merits coalition government that oversaw the first three years of the Oslo process. Despite his being critical of various Israeli policies prior to Oslo, he has strongly condemned those other critics who defame the state, particularly when that, that defamation sinks to the level of delegitimizing Israel. Rubinstein is critical of the anti-Zionist and, post, and post-Zionist academics, pointing out the intellectual dishonesty that is characteristic of their arguments especially those in the vein of misrepresenting Israel's early history and invoking the nation's alleged misdeed during the War of Independence or the early post-war years to challenge the state's legitimacy. He notes the predilection of many among them to ca- criticize the concept of object- objective history and talk of competing narratives. But he observes, they then dismiss the Jewish narrative and accord the legitimacy owing to the Arab version of while typically omitting information that might cast a negative light on the Palestinians and other Arabs. Rubenstein refers also to their inclination to judge Israel by an impossible standard that no policy could meet. Speaking more broadly of fellow left-leaning Israelis, Rubenstein has stated that they have had difficulty coping with the animosity directed against them as Israelis and Jews, confronted as they are not only with Arab hostility, but also the bigoted animosity to which they are subjected in the United Nations, in Europe, and elsewhere. He has suggested that this has driven them to close their eyes to the truth of our hatred and intransigence, and to embrace as reality fantasies of a benign Levant that does not exist. Rubinstein's dedication to assuring equal rights for and Israel's minorities has been steadfast and a central tenet of his political agenda. But he has observed with regard to anti Zionist and post Zionist attacks on the flag and the tikva that flags and national anthems are typically rooted in a national and religious tradition. He has argued that, quote, this connection seems to be conventionally accepted even in the most enlightened countries, countries where Jews live on their flags adorned with crosses without feeling that their rights have been compromised, unquote. With regard to the law of return, he has noted the obvious hypocrisy of those who condemn it as racist and unfair to. Israel's Arab minority, while at the same time putting forward as models for Israel, European democracies that themselves give immigration and citizenship preference to those with ethnic ties to the majority group in their countries. Do so without those groups having the horrific histories of forced exile and persecution that the Jews do, and obviously do so without regarding the relevant policies and laws as undemocratic. These states include, for example, Denmark, Italy, Greece, and Ireland. Rubenstein writes at one point, referencing German policy, quote, in spite of the existence of the European Convention on Human Rights and the European Court for Human Rights, Germany has never been called upon to annul its own law of return on grounds that it harms the universal principle of equality. Moreover, the right of a state to differentiate between groups of potential immigrants and citizens was expressly recognized, recognized in the United Nations Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination, ratified in 1965. In addition, the legitimacy of state policies of preferential repatriation was affirmed by the Council of Europe in 2001. In seeking to strip Israel of its Jewish identity, post-Zionist voices have also argued that Israel's claim to be not only a Jewish state, but, quote, the state of the Jews, unquote, and to have an interest and responsibility for the Jewish diaspora is another characteristic that sets the nation apart from normal states and undermines its legitimacy. But here again, Rubenstein argues, Israel's stance is not as unique or abnormal as its critics would suggest. On the contrary, he observes that in Europe there has been a transport increasing recognition of this right of states to assert an interest in and a responsibility for their kin living elsewhere, with kin meaning, of course, those with ties to the majority group in the country. Rubenstein notes that, quote, nine European countries, Austria, Bulgaria, Greece, Hungary, Italy, Romania, Russia, Slovakia, and Slovenia, have even passed laws granting official status to the connection between the nation and its ethnic or religious brethren, or, na- or national brethren living abroad. The legitimacy of such legislation and related policies was asserted by the Council of Europe Venice Commission in 2001 and endorsed by the Council in 2003. Rubenstein's stance on, this state, on these issues points out what should be obvious truth that one may stand anywhere along the political spectrum with regard to views on of Israeli policies and their reformation without subscribing to or tolerating bigoted attacks on the state, the tax that sinks to the level of anti-Jewish bias. No doubt, as long as Israel is under siege, there will be Jews in Israel and the diaspora who, in their desire either to reform the state in accordance with the indictments of the besiegers, because they hope thereby to end the assault, or to exempt their part of the Jewish community from, the, uh, from attack, or to separate themselves of in- individuals from the community, will lend credence to, and even outrightly support, bigoted claims against Israel. This virtual inevitability makes it all the more incumbent on others, again, wherever they stand on the political spectrum, to follow Rubenstein's model in speaking out against Jewish anti-Semitism. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. Um, so Professor Levin has agreed to take questions. And- take the prerogative of uh, starting off the question session. So I I, I, uh, I enjoyed your paper very much. Uh, It was thought-provoking at some levels for me. Um, Having been a scholar in Israel, I was at Ben Gurion University in the late 90s and early 2000s. um, And I was part of a milieu that was very much, say, speaking to and connected to. Arab scholars, Palestinian scholars, postmodernists, and there was all sorts of excitement leading up I think, to Camp David, from Oslo to Camp David, um, among the scholars. But as it became clear that Arafat wasn't interested in peace, as Islamists were rising to power, and things were shifting on the ground, and I think people, before the failure of Camp David, people who were going to the territories were realizing something was shifting, especially with the rise of radical Islam, that there was... I think a reaction to that, I think some people um, maybe took off the rose-tinted lenses and saw the reality on the ground, and as the intifada started and things shifted, I think I, I would say that there's been a shift. Uh, there's very few people left on that sort of edge of the spectrum. A lot of people became more central or woke up to the reality on the ground and, the shift, and the radically shifted reality on the ground. But having said that, From a psychological perspective, it would make sense to me that Israeli scholars feel besieged. I lived in Jerusalem during the second Intifada and definitely had a sense of being besieged in terms of my space, my personal freedoms, and I'm sure affected me psychologically, um, as well as the people living particularly in Jerusalem and in Israel in general. So there was a sense of besiegement. And I can understand how some scholars and intellectuals internalize it and deal with it But my question would be why is there such a, I would say, a culture of distance among intellectuals in the United States, particularly among, I would say, the mainstream, liberal, highly educated scholars in the United States to distance themselves from Israel, um, to distance themselves from the conflict, to label people who are dealing with the rise of radical Islam Incitement to genocide, incitement to eradicate the state of Israel, why are people who are concerned about this, whether they are left wing or right wing, being labeled as neo-cons? Why, without respect to the success of Isa, why is the average age today in this audience without you know with no disrespect in a university quite old? Where are the students? Where are the intellectuals? Uh, dealing with these issues in the United States and, and I'm reminded of two events that I think actually shook me on a personal level, Elie Wiesel was here a few months ago and here he was dealing with Iran, incitement, incitement to genocide and the possibility that there's going to be another holocaust and here his generation of people who survived the holocaust and everything that he's been teaching for decades, here he was standing at Yale University talking about another holocaust and the lack of people's um, concern or act action about this issue. And you mentioned Sharansky and I had the opportunity to meet Sharansky and he was telling me that when he was in solitary confinement in the Soviet Union as he put it, housewives and students were tearing down the walls of his prison cell and he knew he would be free one day and he knew that he would be in Israel. And he's downfounded by the fact that American students and American intellectuals are silent when people are preparing another Holocaust. So. I understand the vestigement in Israel, what's happening here? Uh, well,
1: when you're talking about American academia, clearly, however bad it is on our campuses, it's a lot worse in Europe. And um, and certainly in, the, in other elements uh, of the elite, the political elite and the journalistic elite is a lot worse in Europe uh, than it is here. Academia, that's a, that's a good question. I don't have any authority for it. In fact, I'm supposed to speak about it. Nine days from now, uh, um, on a panel talking about the campuses and the campuses, and, and, uh, and uh, uh, it's—I don't have any good answers. Certainly, there's, if you look at the Middle East studies departments and the amount of might be poured into this, is like the mosque in the states by the Saudis and how much that is preferred. Who gets appointments, and and, uh, uh, and so they and they sort of set the tone. There is the uh, sort of new uh, post-Vietnam people who went a lot of went into academia to avoid the draft in the 60s and now they're now running the universities and have a, a kind of particular political predilections. international list of uh, people who have written about uh, post-modern but internationalist meaning against the West, you know, anything that's anti-Western and for many people for many people it's not what I'm this way but Israel's greatest sin is being an ally of the United States and that's true in American candidates as well, I mean, if, if the Iranians or uh, called call uh, Americans, the great America, the great Satan, or the little Satan, you, you, you can, you're not seeing very much different on on the campuses. Uh, the and and you see again in terms of the theme of this paper, you see you often see Jews, Jewish students. I mean, you see Jewish students trying to fight this or viscerally know something's wrong with like this, and many of them. Unfortunately, don't have the education or can articulate why it's wrong, and don't have the background, and need, and need everyone's support, your group's support, and, 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 and being able to do so. But you also see people signing up with uh, with the, with, the uh, uh, with those who assail it, uh, the right for there to be a Jewish state. So, uh, the uh, again, people have thought about this and, and written about this and uh, have thought about it much more than I have. Uh, there people have talked about what is the cause of the left in the face of the collapse of the Soviet Union, in the the face of the collapse of the communist movement, uh, except in Cuba, maybe, or the vestiges of it in China, and that this kind of internationalist, anti-Western theme in a new new context uh, has has built a battle. And and some people have written about this and defined postmodernism, and certainly, uh, Israel gets labeled. But in Europe, it, it, uh, certainly, it's a line. It's both the old innocent. Some some uh, hate America because it's supportive of the Jews, and some hate Jews because of the supportive of America, and because they always hated the Jews. <laughs> um, but it's also, I mean, you can talk about the problem in terms of, uh, of, of the broader elites as well. And, and in some sense, some people have argued against uh, when, when others—not—not not so much in response to, to my book, for example, but some earlier writing that uh, that simply addressed the uh, the impact—and not not in the terms that I'm, I'm doing it here, but the book but simply addressed the impact of, uh, for example, Buber Circle at Hebrew University on. On Israeli academia, and then on the uh, sort of anti-Zionist, post zionist views that emerged, that uh, emerged uh, more emphatically in, the, in the, 90s, the 80s and the 90s, I said, "Well, why see it as a uniquely Israeli phenomenon when you see so many similar things going on in, in, in European, European academia or American academia? What was interesting, what was notable about Israel is how much it then." Permeated the, the general population. It would have been limited. You know, we see. Perhaps we'll see. We'll see it in, in other ways. And of course, in America. You, if you talk about the political impact, you are not just talking about the campuses. you are talking about the media and everything else. And, but the campuses have not had the impact. Uh, the academics have not had the impact that, uh, that they have in, in terms of conveying, winning over the people to their message as they did in Israel. And I think. The impact of a broader uh, willingness to close their eyes to what was what they were being subjected to, to the real predicament, and embrace this delusional comprehension of the predicament, is what uh, the very situation of besiegement is what drove them to uh, to listen uh, to, to buy into the academic line. <clears throat> and Any questions? As I was today, I was listening to the WNR.
2: <laughs> And there was a piece on it, not about you. Last week there was a notice, or there was an item in the news at Avon Old School where a black student had anti-black items scribbled on her door. Uh, driving in today, they said that they had found the perpetrator, and it was another black student. And I'm wondering if people other than Jews have certain forms of
1: self-hate. Yeah, absolutely. My, my argument in my in my book uh, is that this is some people have tried to say over the years. You can go back again to some of the writings on Jewish antisemitism or Jewish self hatred a hundred years ago. This was a uniquely Jewish phenomenon, and have given reasons why it, it might be uniquely Jewish. In fact, I argue the opposite that. You can see it with any group under chronic attack, whether it's minorities that are marginalized, defamed, uh, denigrated, perhaps physically attacked, or small states under chronic siege by their neighbors. And uh, if you talk about blacks, interesting. You could, uh, you could read the Tocqueville writing in, 19- in 1835 about uh, blacks you came across that were not slave, but you know how they sort of bought into the white concept of black inferiority in America. Uh, and it, there is a, a, an interesting, uh, and we were just talking about beliefs within societies. Uh, there, and Thurgood Marshall, of course, the first African-American Supreme Court Justice, wrote a concurring opinion to the Supreme Court case in uh, 1977. And when he starts off his opinion by saying that it is, it is well known among social scientists that the elites of minorities Commonly embrace the wider society's bias against their own minority. Mm-hmm. And the case he was talking about did not involve either Jews or African-Americans. I mean, it's clearly talking, he's always this true of African-Americans. They, uh, this case actually involved uh, Mexican-Americans. But that,
0: that's an interesting statement, it addresses what you're saying. Yeah. So this, uh, I think Du Bois in 1899 wrote about this notion of double consciousness, which is fascinating in terms of self-hatred and perceiving yourself in society. You know, I would like to suggest maybe in addition to what you just said. Um, I think that, indeed when 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 one moves from his own society and trying to be accepted into another society well, or you know, another circle might uh, generate that you describe in order to fulfill the need to be accepted, Then you have to maybe deny your source. And I'm saying it because you only see it uh, among
1: several respects. Uh, one could argue in terms of why, why uh, it, you see it, it most or often see it most among the elites groups, what, what Thurgood Marshall was referring to, that it's the elites who aspire to a different place with broader society. You know, they, they, Most of the, of the minority might be comfortable to within within their own community. It's the other, it's those who aspire either because they, you know, they, they, they have the aspiration to begin with, and so they're going to you know, look at themselves differently because they want to be accepted, or those who just yes, their whatever, their position, like their family's position, their uh, talents, whatever, pushes them towards interaction with the wider society, and then they come across the bias, and so they, they respond to that with, with, uh, in the way you're saying. Uh, so that you could look at that as a part of the explanation for why it's particularly elites or more so elites. But there is a, the other issue of what the, the, communities are not defenseless against, not entirely defenseless against the psychological corrosiveness of besiegement. But defense is requires uh, strong communal institutions, communal institutions that have some. Uh, moral suasion in the community that convey a different message. a message of the, of the individual's integrity, the community's integrity, that, that they are being abused, that, that there's a the lie in the assault, the lie in the bias. It, it's equivalent to my model, as I refer to in the book, for this whole phenomenon on the, on the level of individual psychology is the psychology of abused children. If you talk to anybody who's worked with abused children, psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers who work with them, Consistently, or have much experience in really uh, uh, going into some depth, depth into their uh, modes of thinking, they'll tell you they almost invariably such children blame themselves. And when you talk about chronic abuse, you're most often talking about parental abuse. And if you <coughs> say, well, why do they blame themselves? And most of the literature attributes it to. And I have it. Children's that that is,
2: the abusing parent tells the children they're bad and that's why they're doing ADHD to them. And the
1: children in naivety just accept that as true. I'm bad. But in fact, children are not that naive. You know, the son of an alcoholic father who comes home in a drunken rage several nights a week and beats him, knows he's being abused. But he will repress that and tell him, sit in I'm doing something wrong. And if, if I were better, if I whatever got better grades in school, you know, had his dinner ready when he came home, uh, earned more money in my paper route, whatever, that I could change his behavior, and uh, and they do so not because they're naive. Again, they're not that naive. They do so because consider the existential predicament of such children. They can either acknowledge the reality that they are helpless in their situation, that all the power is in the hands of the other and resign themselves to that hopelessness or they could embrace the delusion that it's really in their control that this happening because they are bad and they then have to deal with the guilt or whatever of being bad but they preserve the delusion that I have control of the situation, if I become good enough then, then I will change my father's behavior now in that situation and again it's this is Pervasive among abuse the children. There is a possibility of a, 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 you know, a, a defense against that psychological charisma of protection, and that is if there's some other adult in the child's life who may not be able to remove, move them out of the situation. But say a grandparent or an uncle or an aunt who gives them a different message, who says, No, you know, your parents are treating you badly. And you're some, there's nothing wrong with you. And that someday you'll be able to get out of this situation and go on and have a decent life because you're a decent child and there's nothing wrong with you. And that could help at least, it may not be able to protect them physically or whatever, but at least could help protect them psychologically from his predicament. Now communal institutions could do the same thing. If they're strong enough and if they have enough moral suasion in the community, they can convey a different message. And. Uh, Part of what happened in Europe when we're talking about modernity is that the, the evolution of the modern nation state in the last several hundred years also entailed the destruction of strong Jewish communal institutions for various reasons, but they were destroyed. Part of the reasons why Jews in Eastern Europe still thought of themselves in national terms and were comfortable with that, even so that you had, for example, socialists. Jewish socialist parties formed, and Jewish nationalism alive when it was one in Eastern Europe. In Western Europe, was because those institutions existed for longer and even maintained the vestigial existence far, be, far after they disappeared in the West. Now, I think if you go into uh, the uh, North African Sephardic communities and, and even Middle Eastern, but particularly in North Africa, you had strong Jewish institutional, communal institutions that helped. In just the way you're suggesting, that help them retain their sense of integrity, of the viability, of what's worth, of value, despite the hostility of the surrounding society. So that's... I would say, I would say it's even more the
0: reaction and the uh, reaction and reaction. <coughs> the environment around uh, those Jewish. Uh, people, but there's all you
1: can say that. But there's always a way. You can convert to Islam if you really want. If you're really worth saying, you know my community is tainted. My community is passe. My community is going to disappear. And the future is out there. Then you could convert. You can, convert either to, or you can convert to Christianity, you know, when they're French, the French are in Algeria and Morocco and Tunisia, you can convert to Christianity, So there was always, if you chose to do it. Michael, one of the most, one of the many fascinating points of the in the Apostles in the that you
2: wrote about was sometimes you some kind of some stay in choice of values uh, by Jewish To the besiegement phenomenon that he describes so But that left some unexplained to me, uh, or the offers phenomenon, which is a resistance to potentially strong allies on the part of a lot of members of the Jewish community in America. What I'm thinking is, I know this is a bit of a loaded question, but you look at the media today, publications, newspapers, publishers, etc., and it's very hard to find what a lot of folks may consider, a lot of Jewish folks may consider. Positions, such as the New York Times, Boston Globe, um, websites like David Cross, where it's particularly relevant, et cetera. You look at the media associated with the more conservative positions, such as National Review, Wall Street Journal, The Standard, and you see a profound and a deeply intellectual and highly rational defense of Israel, the Jewish Project, nationalism, etc. Um, yet I find it in my own family, and many discussions when I try to say you should take a look at some of these articles. Serious and alternative discussions. There's a rejection that goes beyond the merits of the articles of the writers. It's often said to me, Well, that's just the Christian right that sees Israel as part of the millenarian project and, 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 and sort of the apocalypse. And this is now a rejection. I'm curious what your study of the historical analysis and on is the close mind destroyed story, strong analyze, at least as to this particular issue of Israel's existence and survival.
1: Uh, thank you for asking that. But also, I'm going to address that, but I want to go back a step. And also, we were talking to talk about this model of the child, you know, the, the helplessness and the, and the delusion of being in control. If you look at Israel's actual position, the dominant force in the Middle East is the, the dominant party. The, this is the Muslim Arab world. You know, they're are 300 million in the excess compared to uh, six plus million Israelis, of whom five plus million are. The decision of peace, of come, if and when it will come, will come on the Arabs' timetable, not on Israel's. And Israel has no capacity to really influence it very much. Nothing of Israel does. really has not much of, it, of an impact on it. I mean, I can talk more about that. But it will be on the, Israel's, on the Arabs' timetable. But it's that very helplessness, in the sense, that sort of feeds, feeds the delusion, you know, that inspires. Well, we want to be out of this situation of being besieged, so we will delude ourselves in believing that if we take the right steps. Israel, at its best, could defend the state, hopefully pre- prevents it from being attacked. And so if it doesn't do that, at least prevails when the state is attacked. There's nothing Israel can do that, that can force peace on the Arabs. And the truth is the Arab world doesn't need peace. With Israel. In fact, most of them see it as a threat. The leaders certainly do, because they can use, as every you know, dictatorial regime always does, You use, use outside enemies. To divert attention from domestic ills. they've always done that. It's, it's the uh, uh, coin in terms of inter Arab you know, competition among Arab leaders, who's more in, and if you make a concession, then you, you, then that generates threats. Uh, if you, certainly the Islamists are 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 not don't see, feel any need for peace with Israel, and those those potentates that are holding off the Islamists of it is competing with them within their own population for anti- so anti-Israel, indeed anti-Semitic lines. So if you look at the media
2: of countries with,
1: Egypt, with which Israel to peace, Jordan, formerly Jordan and Egypt, full of not only anti-Israel material, but anti- the anti-Semitic material, has was just increased with, uh, beyond what it was before the peace treaty. But uh, on the, on the point uh, that you were raising I think part of the uh, of the psychology of uh, that you saw in Europe too the psychology of, of besieged groups is go on to part of their defense uh, attempts to defend themselves is to immerse themselves in a wider and wider group so that there you could argue that uh, <laughs> certainly liberal forces, in Europe were more supportive of giving civic rights to Jews than conservative forces. But at the same time, and many Jews for good rational reasons, therefore, identify with liberal parties. You can talk about in the liberal Jews, some Jews assume the leadership position, for example, in the liberal liberal revolutions of forty eight of eighteen forty eight. Or if you look at the unification, unification of Germany seems strange now, unification of Germany and of Italy were both liberal causes. And Jews were overrepresented in those who took an active role So there was a rationale to it. But the, beyond that, being a sense of being a, a, uh, a vulnerable minority, they tried to, they confounded, they were inclined to confound what were alliances that may or may not withstand the test of time because their other you know alliances form and break up and so forth they were invested in them this notion of universe that it, preternatural trans you know, significance these alliances are forever and people didn't when and when the uh, their former when the uh, anti semitic parties evolved in the 1880s 1890s in Germany in austro-hungary and and much uh, of the liberal, allies abandoned them for and, and joined is it, the Jews are alone. What happened? And if you look at polls, you take that history and look at polls of Jews in America, up until very recently, probably if you did a poll today, Jews in America will tell you re been polled repeatedly state that anti-Semitism is more common among conservatives than liberals. And there is no basis for that in any polling in the United States. And if you look at it, you can talk about you know church anti-Semitism and on the right, you know, over the years, but you look at populist anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism on the left, which has much to do with you know the the, the hostile response to the immigra- Jewish immigration earlier in the in the, in the early in the twentieth century and to the quota systems that were imposed mainly against Jews and to what was going on the, in the thirties. As much of it was left as populist anti-Semitism as to the right there's never been a real indica- any indication that anti-Semitism is more common among quote liberal people on the left and on the right, but that is a common assumption, because, and it's because it's this investment in the notion of universal, of, of transcendent alliances, because they want to believe that there are allies out there that they could, that that they don't have to worry about, that they can trust, <coughs> even though again and again history shows them up otherwise. People didn't know how to respond, you know. Again, uh, people arriving from in Eastern Europe in the early part of the century, uh, Jews arriving from Eastern Europe, uh, a lot of them, because of where they were coming from, the politics and czarist Russia, uh, embraced socialist parties in this country. And then, particularly uh, with Roosevelt, became Democrats, overwhelming Democrats. And they had good reason to be. You know? and, and that. And partly because Jews could hardly get jobs in the in, in the 20s and 30s. At such a level, and and and, uh, and the, the New Deal um, employment situations were open to them in a way that uh, competitive employment in, in the private sector wasn't, and they were at all levels of positions. And, and they saw this as this grand alliance of the of, of the downtrodden. Uh, and but and, and they were unprepared for how to respond to Roosevelt's indifference, really hostility in terms of European Jewry during the war, and refusal to really do anything. And, act, and his administration actively working against any, any efforts at at, uh, at at rescue. And indeed, then he had Jew, then the Jewish, people in the Jewish leadership, who again wanted to see this alliance as somehow transcendent, and some people refused to believe what they were saying, and also refused to. To accept Republican help when Republicans were speaking out against the need for for the need for rescue, urging Roosevelt to pressure the British to open Palestine to Jews to escape from who who were in a position to escape from Europe, and there was you had um, the head of uh, uh, Wise Stephen Wise writing to when the the, the Republicans in their 1944 platform had a plank in it urging that the that the administration pressure Britain to open up Palestine, and and Wise rights to Roosevelt and attacking Roosevelt for not doing so, the administration for not doing so, and uh, for going along with all Britain's maneuvers to you know, to prevent any rescue of Jews, and uh, and Wise rights to. Roosevelt, saying he's ashamed of the Re- It's terrible that the Republicans did this, because everybody knows what a friend he is of the Jews. And he's sure, the Jewish people won't accept this and will see the trick. The trick? And what the Republicans were trying to do. But
2: it's that wishful thinking.
1: And that's that common. You look, at, oh, you look at African-Americans and their dedication to the party. And does unip- one party predictable voting pattern serve the community? Or does it have to do with their history and, and their wish to see particular lines? Yeah, well, I think the question. I, I think it's when you think about anti Semitism, making a trauma perspective is going to be quite relevant as the example of the character of the Jewish child. You know, wonder if Jewish anti Semitism can be viewed from a perspective identification with the perpetrator. Well, uh yeah i mean the the uh, in my book i told about the um anna freud's concept of the identification of the aggressive but um anna freud it, it, in the context of psychoanalysis is really a, a very a subversive concept because it, it, if you really found she didn't follow the flag the conclusion that really would have overturned a lot of her father's theories but she saw it as a universal phenomenon you know she saw it as The identification of the aggressor she saw as essentially, she used it to sort of explain the child's embrace of parental criticism. The the basis for morality was was wanting to identify with the parent. So they embraced the moral precepts, children embraced the moral precepts conveyed by the the parents. Becomes the, the basis for superego against their father's concept of you know, sexual feelings and repression of sexual abuse. I don't know but. what I'm talking I'm,
2: I'm coming from a trial perspective where clearly the decision and sense of of the victim is explained by the, the experience of being attack and being prosecuted. And I wonder if you view.
1: Become to join with the aggressor, to join with the uh, besieger, not just in terms of divorcing yourself from the community and, and mimicking the besieger, but sort of being sort of leading the charge against your own community. It, it, it is not by the same You know, um, there was a fellow who wrote some years ago. Um, at, he's on the faculty of Brandeis. And he was saying, and this goes back to I have a reference my book, uh, late '70s or something, saying that the left in the United States is not aggressive enough to, uh, in attacking Israel, and that uh, the reason why is they they feel uh, compelled to, to hold back from it because of the way they 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 may be viewed if they if they aggressively attack the Jewish state, and so it's up to Jews to. Assure them it's okay, and to lead the way in the leftist attack on on Israel. I think that's what you're you're suggesting, where they where they, they not only sort of mimic to integration themselves, but actually become leaders.
2: Yes, an attack. That's exactly what you're saying. Mm-hmm.
0: Any questions? Okay. So I think we'll leave it here. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Just to, uh, before you go, Cindy's going to be passing out some notices. Next week we have a very important event. David Menasheri is coming. He's speaking about Iran. He's a professor at Tel Aviv University and a leading expert on the Iranian situation internationally and domestically.